Hey friends, welcome back to Real Life Marriage, where I'm your host, Candace Mummert. And on a great day, my husband, Aaron, joins me as the co-host. Whether I'm sharing tidbits and encouragement or interviewing people brave enough to share what goes on behind closed doors in their marriage, it's all for the goal of strengthening marriages. We're glad you joined us as we unpack the good, the bad, and everything in between when it comes to real life marriage. He, yeah, he found this mole by his ear and he didn't find it and become alarmed by the mole itself. It was just getting in the way when he was trying to shave, so it was bothersome. So he went to the doctor just to have it removed. All right, I know I left you on a little bit of a cliffhanger, so let's jump right back in for part two of my interview with Linda Smith. So um, when he went to the doctor, the doctor said, yeah, it doesn't look like anything bad. We'll go ahead and biopsy it just because. And so they did that. And I remember being at, at work one day and he called me. Um, it wasn't the day of the appointment because, you know, those things take time to get results yeah. back. But I mean, that wasn't even on our radar as something bad. It was just, I, we hadn't even been thinking about it, but he said, the doctor called, they had the results back from the biopsy and it's melanoma. Well, when I hear that word now, it's terrifying because I know how it ends, but at the time, I knew that was a skin cancer, and it, it was just a small spot on his, the side of his face, and the doctor, you know, was concerned but not panicking and said, you know, we're going to send you on to a dermatologist to check this out. But I, I started Googling, <laughs> which <laughs> you probably should never do, but I can't not know everything I need to know, and that was the quickest way to find out some things. So Sure. I did go online and start researching melanoma and got myself a little bit more scared than I had been initially and um, did start to feel that anxiety over, you know, what is what is this going to mean? Is Maybe this is, you know, he'll be in the percentage where it's fine and, you know, no big deal. It wasn't. No so at deal. that point, did you feel like in that moment, kind of your life flipped upside down or it was more of a step-by-step because you didn't expect the mole to be a problem, but then it might be, and then it could be, uh, you know, that the melanoma would lead to other things, but it may not, or was it kind of all of a sudden it felt like your life had flipped upside down? It was not all of a sudden. It was gradual because if you're just, you know, looking up information about melanoma, it's not too scary yet, especially if there's, it hasn't been staged. We hadn't even been to a dermatologist, you know, sometimes people can have those and have them removed and, you know, they have a pretty good prognosis. So I was anxious because it it was a little scary. It was skin cancer and anytime you have cancer, that's scary, but no feeling like everything was turned upside down. That took a little bit longer with more appointments and different doctors and all that. So, but in Dan's case, unfortunately, after going to the dermatologist, you did learn that there was more concern. Yes. With melanoma, there are kind of stages of even finding out uh, the extent of it. And we went from primary doctor to dermatologist and eventually to oncologist. And I think when you start when you have your appointment with the oncologist, that's when it's like, okay, this is 
scary. This we're not just dealing with a skin issue anymore. This is cancer. Yeah. Like it's for real cancer and they're going to tell us, you know, the extent and the prognosis and all that. And so it was very obvious something was wrong. And of course at this point all of our friends and family know what's going on and um but he was really still very upbeat, very much believing this we're going to beat this and even if we don't, which I barely could entertain that thought, even if we don't, you know, God's got us. We're it's we've got him and our faith is not circumstantial and on that note, that is one thing that I could sit and listen to all day is the way you are able to share how Dan set such an example in your marriage and in your home of choosing joy and choosing faith and uh, just such a beautifully spirited light to be around. Yes, he really did. Immediately, some things that I think of when you say that are, um, so he had this huge bandage that he had to wear for several weeks, and he loved going to the high school football games. We all did. We still do. Uh, But we would all go as a family, and our team is the Boswell Pioneers, and uh, they made it to the playoffs that season, and he was determined to go to this playoff game that was shortly after his surgery with this huge bandage. But instead of not going or instead of going and appearing to be sick or uh, weak or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, he, he had me write on the bandage and big in a big blue marker, go boss. <laughs> <laughs> so we showed up to that game with the big elephant in the room and we were like, go ahead and stare, but we're cheering for our team right now. Oh, so that was, I mean, that was just how he did things. And also I remember at, around that time, he just started scheduling a lot of family getaways, just little weekend things, you know, with the kids, just fun stuff that we had never done before. Yeah. And I don't know if he was kind of in his head doing a bucket list or if it just was so real to him that this is what really matters. And we have, mm-hmm. I've got to really invest in this and not do a lot of worrying, but just be present right now. And he did that. And it was really very thoughtful and sweet. And those kind of memories are just treasures. Yes. And how old were the kids at this point? Savannah was, would have been 13. And then the twins were both 11 and then Nate was seven. So they were old enough to definitely understand a lot of what was going on. Yeah, especially Savannah, for sure. And then, so after the surgery, did you get good news or okay news or not so good news? Um, We did, and we got good news a lot that would be followed by, oh, oops, because we'd have to go back for a checkup and, you know, something would have come Mm. bad. But, yeah, a lot of, after the radical neck dissection, they were pretty confident, you know, we got it all and, you know, it's just recovery now. There's really not a different kind of treatment at that point. And so, but then, you know, he went back for um, a checkup and, or actually we were on one of those weekend getaways with the kids and he noticed a knot kind of coming up in the same area where the surgery had been. Um, Mm -hmm. So we went back and uh, they found that it had come back. Um, And so at, 
in the next couple of months, we also found out that it had metastasized to his brain. So um, then the course of action was going to be different. So when did you feel, was it around this time maybe um, that you were no longer just, just take that lightly, <laughs> but um, just Dan's wife, but also becoming his caregiver? Yeah. When it, when we found out he had three tumors in his brain and once that happened, his, his vision started being affected. Some of his physical abilities were affected. He had debilitating headaches. And Mm -hmm. so it kind of, everything changed a little bit at that point because he really physically needed me more, um, not just emotional support, not just being his wife, but he really did need more caretaking. And of course, I was honored to do that. But it's very challenging trying to do all of that, for sure. Yes, absolutely. What are some encouragements or suggestions that you would have for wives who become the caregiver or husbands that are listening and become the caregivers for their wives through illness? What are some things that you learned or that that you wouldn't change or maybe things that if you could do it again, you would know better this time? I think I tried as much as I knew that he needed me to be his caretaker. I tried to maintain the fact that he was the one who got to make decisions about his own care. Mm-hmm. You know, you it, I think you can get into a place where you feel like your spouse is almost your child because you're mm-hmm. taking care of them. But I tried to maintain a respect for him as an adult, you know, and he was, I mean, it wasn't like he couldn't function, but that's a, it's a tricky balance, but I, I think that's important to remember. I think allowing people to help us at that time was really important because I think maybe, I think you get an idea, okay, I'm got to be everything now. I've got to be Superman, Superwoman, Mm. whatever. And I'm the caretaker, I'm the wife, I'm taking care of the kids, I can do this, I got this. And you can get so caught up in that that you kind of turn away help because, uh, I don't know, pride or just feeling like if I don't do everything that I'm not doing enough. Because mm-hmm. um, you feel so helpless anyway. You can't save their life, but uh, you feel like you want to do every single thing you can short of that. But I think accepting help was really important for me to maintain sanity and just to be able to rest sometimes and absolutely taking care of myself as much as I think I didn't do that enough. I guess maybe if I would say there was something I would change, maybe it would be that just um, I think a lot of times I would not take great care of myself. I wouldn't really eat enough. I wouldn't get enough rest because I was just stressed out and I, I just wanted to always be doing something to help. You know, I say I would do that differently. My personality would make it difficult to do it differently, <laughs> but yeah. I would hope, you know, if I learned from my mistakes, if I was in the same position, I think I would tell myself to not be so hard on myself, you know, yeah. do a little bit of self care because you got to, you do have to take care of yourself right? or you're not and, able to help take care of them. Right. And what are some of the best ways that friends and family were able to help you in, in that season? Helping with kids, like yes. uh, being willing to just say, Hey, 
I'm going to grab the kids. We're going to go, you know, to wherever, to the park, and uh, we'll have them back in a couple of hours. Nothing huge, you know. I didn't need somebody to take over the care of my kids, but even little breaks like that were important. Sure. And, and just, I appreciated, and everybody's different, but I appreciated people calling and saying, I want to do this specific thing. Is that okay? I think when people say, call me if you need anything, I'm never going to call them. That's, yeah, <laughs> it's that's just good. Not, I mean, a lot of people say that and, and I know they mean well, and I know that if I had called, they would have done something, but you're so wrapped up in the moment of what's going on that you're not th- thinking about calling somebody else or I wasn't. And I think sure. a lot of people are like that. So and sometimes it's easier thing. to just do it yourself rather than yes. think ahead to ask somebody else to do, well, I'm just going to do it. That just seems easier in the moment. Exactly. If all I have to say is, yes, that is helpful. Please do it. That's so much easier than planning out who yeah. I need to help me with what. And so the- that's really good. I think we can all take that mm-hmm. nugget for sure, because we feel like, well, we don't want to do something that's not going to be helpful or we don't want to overstep or we don't. So what do you need? And I'll do it. But it would be so much easier for you to not have to put the brain power into, well, I need this and then I need this. And this is what time I need this to just call and say, yeah, I'd like to do this for you. Is that OK? Or will that help today? Exactly. Yeah. I think thinking about practical things like that, it's so hard because if somebody said, what do you need? I would have thought I need my husband to not have cancer. (laughs) And you know, it's like, you're not thinking I need the laundry done. I need my kids taken to school. I need a meal for Wednesday night, you know, just stuff that other people could think of and just Mm -hmm. say, can I do this for you? Will this help? And it's much easier just to say, yes, that would help. Or Actually, I think we're okay right now with that. Yeah. So So once Dan's brain tumors were found, the prognosis got quite a bit worse. Yes. Correct? Yes. They didn't come right out and, you know, say, I don't know, I guess if we had asked, which at one point I did ask, what's the prognosis here? And the doctor was very... Uh, forthcoming was saying it's not a good prognosis, but they still had a plan of action. They still sent us to a neurologist, a neurosurgeon. So they were going to do surgery. So they had plans for what to do. And I think in the back of my mind, I thought, well, if they're still trying to treat it, then there must still be hope that it can be treated. Yeah. Um, and I did have that hope. Um, I mean, I, I was definitely beginning to toy with the idea and talk about it to close friends and family that he might not survive this. I I couldn't say it for a long time, but then I realized that is a very real possibility. How do you continue to like function day to day when that becomes a conversation in your reality? Like what do you cling to? (laughs) I clung to the hope that God had us, that Mm -hmm. as horrible as the present circumstances seemed, he had not forgotten about us. None of this was a surprise to him. Mm. He loved us. He was a good God. And I just had to trust him. Even if what was going to happen was the worst thing I could possibly think of happening, that didn't change that he was good and he loved us. And I, I mean, there were certainly days where I cried a lot, 
Mm-hmm. Days where I was angry, days where I just felt despair, like how in the world can I do this without Dan here? But even if I started to kind of feel hopeless, Dan was spewing hope. I mean, he, <laughs> of course, was very sad too. We cried together. We didn't want this to be how it ended. Right. But he never changed his stance on God is good. Our faith is not circumstantial. We don't say God is good because he's going to heal me from this. We just know he's good. And whatever happens right now, some of it's going to feel bad. It's going to be horrible. It could be. But that doesn't change who God is. And and when we're crying, he's crying with us. He's, He's catching those tears. And he knows that we're crying. And he loves us. And he hurts with us. And we cannot, there's no way we can understand the big plan and Mm -hmm. why. But we just, instead of asking why, we just continue to move on and trust that whatever he's doing is for the good. And that's, Dan kept saying that and living that. And I lived it right next to him. So, yeah. And would you agree that even in your relationship with God, it is absolutely okay to have all of those emotions that you listed, the anger and the despair and, and, and all of those, that's okay. As long as you're still looking at God and saying, God, this is how I feel. It's okay. You don't have to not feel those things. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, I, all through that process, all through everything in the last seven years, you know, I've definitely had a huge range of emotions and a lot of them have been negative (laughs) and I cannot change everything that happens around me, but I know that God doesn't change based on what happens around me. Yeah. I just keep looking at him and it's just like with our kids, you know, our kids get mad at us. Our kids get sad about things that happen. Our kids don't understand every decision that we make, but it, they do not become less loved by us. They do not, we don't disown them. They're still our children. We love them and we do our best to help them understand, but there's no way that they can always understand every decision that we make. Just like there is no way we can understand God completely, but we trust him. And you can, we can walk fully in faith, believing in the goodness of God and still have days where we're angry or discouraged or, or whatever. I think that's often yeah. maybe as Christians, we put that pressure on ourselves. Like, well, I, I got to pick myself up. I got to get over this. I'm, I'm believing God is good, but we can believe God is all good and never changing and still have deep anger at a situation that God walks with us and we get through and we lay that down and definitely look- look to someone like Dan, who is just shining the, the, I mean, what a spiritual leader for your household that he, oh, yeah. even in those days was able to spiritually lead you and your kids, um, in hope and love and God's goodness. Yes. Yeah. He That's did awesome. a fantastic job of that. And yeah, what a legacy that he left, but you're right. God is good all the time, but it doesn't mean that I'm happy all the time. <laughs> right. Or that we like everything that happens. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so uh, tell us about that wonderful trip. Was it an anniversary trip? Yeah, to- the one to California. To California, yes. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. Um, he was scheduled to have surgery at the end of December to remove the brain tumors. And our anniversary was January the 4th. 
and so he, without my knowledge, planned this trip to California. It was our 20th anniversary, wow. and um, he planned a huge trip. Um, we have uh, some dear friends out there, so we were going to see them a little bit at the end of the trip, but it was just mostly kind of a, you know, we made it 20 years, and he <laughs> wanted to surprise me, and it was just very sweet. It was so much effort for him, especially the way he was feeling at that point, so yeah. um, it was sweet anyway, but, you know, add on how much he had to endure to actually do all the planning, and it's just one of the most special memories that I have. We asked the doctor before he had already, Dan had already booked the flight. He didn't ask the doctor before that. But um, once, you know, it was getting closer, I said, is it okay for him to airplane travel? Is that okay? And the doctor said, no, I don't think that's a good, good idea. And we both kind of sat there and the doctor just, I don't know, he, he knew, he said, you know what, actually, it's fine. You should take this trip. And I think he was just saying, you know, it's probably the last trip you're going to take. So I'm not going to stop you. So we did, we took the trip and uh, it was, it was wonderful and it was terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Completely imperfect, right? (laughs) It was so imperfect. Like it was so hard. It was He had rented a convertible, which in December in California, I don't know, I guess (laughs) he thought that, and I probably would have thought too, it's California. It's always sunny and warm while it was freezing. So we rarely had the top down and he could barely drive. So I drove most of the time, which was odd for us, but it was fine. And we went, we even rented a this little boat thing in a marina and I had to drive that around. That was scary. He would have been great at it. But anyway, we did it together and we had a wonderful time near the end of the trip. When we did go to see our friends, his headaches were just getting so bad that he spent a lot of the time at their house, just laying down. He just felt terrible. And then the next day we went to the airport and he basically, he needed a wheelchair to even get around in the airport. So it was really, really hard, and yet we had a wonderful time that I will never forget. You know, it, it was just like, of course, yeah. that's the way that we would celebrate the last anniversary together, of course, just like <laughs> he would want to. <laughs> and so that was in December, you said? Yeah, that was about mid-December, and then he did have the surgery at the end of December, and they were able to remove all of the tumors. However, when the surgeon was done, he came out to the waiting area, called me over and said, you know, we, we got all of them, but um, this is so aggressive that if anything comes back, I will not do surgery again. And so really that was the point at which I thought, okay, this is actually, this is it. Because I really thought they had grown so fast and it just, everything happened, it seemed so fast mm-hmm. that um, I just accepted at that point that probably this was going to be it. So. And was it February? Um, well, so he was in ICU right, you know, right then after that surgery. He ended up with a blood clot in his lung and they we're going to do another procedure. And he said, I don't want another procedure. Mm. I just want to go home. And so the doctor said, do you mean hospice? And he said, yes. And so she left the room 
to go get whatever paperwork and we cried. And then I think that was New Year's Eve. And so like January 1st or 2nd, we went home on hospice and um, didn't know how long he would be on hospice. But um, he, yeah, he died on February the 8th. So not too long after we went home. How do you honor and support and love your spouse when you're making such difficult decisions? Like when, you know, in the hospital, he, I'm sure, just had a piece of knowing that was the decision that he needed to make to go home on hospice. Yes. So what I did to support him was just, you know, cry with him, Mm -hmm. pray with him, just be very present and um, support him however he needed me. It was difficult because I, you know, it was my life that was happening too, but I just, whatever he wanted to happen, I just supported him. Yeah. And so then that last month at home on hospice, was life just completely different? Yeah, it was, um, that was a really just dark time. I mean, there were great moments that, that last month because we had so many people, you know, once somebody's on hospice, I think everyone knows, okay, I really, if I'm going to see this person, I really need to go see them. And so we had some really special friends come visit who he hadn't seen in years. And it's really, it's beautiful to hear them talk about coming to see Dan, because just like I've said they you know, they came to try to get, offer him something and inevitably he would offer them something, you know, just hope or advice or just, you know, he did not waste one second as long as he could in just giving hope to other people when of all the people that could have given up hope, it could have been him, but he didn't. He never did. Yeah. You described it as a dark time, mm-hmm. um, obviously with very, very sweet moments mixed in. But as you walked through that that dark time, what would you encourage others with? Or how can we best walk alongside friends and family when there's you know, death kind of looming over you at that time. And you're just taking one day at a time. Mm -hmm. I think probably the most helpful thing that our friends and family offered was just being present as much as possible, not necessarily offering advice or deep thoughts, but just being there and letting, and kind of letting Dan and I, sort of set the tone because sometimes people would come to visit and Dan would be in a really great mood and want to joke around and talk about old times or memories. And that was so good for him and so good for our kids to hear that. Um, It didn't have to always be, you know, you're dying. We've come to say goodbye. You know, if you want to come and visit and Dan wants to talk about crazy stuff y'all did in college, then let's do that. (laughs) Yeah. So he did. And I think that, I think people sometimes are afraid to show up in that moment because it's, it's dark and it's sad and it's scary for us who are about to be, you know, left here with Mm -hmm. somebody we love gone. 
mm-hmm. but um, they're still alive. And so I'm not, I think what Dan wanted to do was to just visit with people, love on people, have, you know, talk about memories, just kind of get every, all the good stuff out that could possibly be spoken before he couldn't say it anymore, you know? That's so good. Yeah. Yeah. So then um, early in February, he died mm-hmm. and you became a widow, a young widow with four active, very alive, <laughs> vigorous children <laughs> still. Um, and as I have gotten to know you and and tried to imagine some of the things um, that you've been through or just the way that you've grown, best I can imagine, I would want to curl up in my bed and probably not get out of it very often, at least for quite a while. Mm-hmm. But how did you walk through that season and how did you get out of bed and just share some of that with us? Well, I think it would be a lie to say that there weren't days that I did not want to get out of bed. I didn't have the opportunity to do that very much uh, because of my kids. And as much as they, you know, taking care of them and keeping them going was a huge responsibility. I think it was also a lifeline because I, my personality was such that I couldn't, I didn't want the death of their father to affect them more than it just had to. I knew Mm. it was going to, I knew it was going to impact their lives forever, but I didn't want um, my reaction to his death to also be a detriment to them. And so I was very determined um, as my, and not to be fake. I mean, they definitely saw me cry, especially Nate, my youngest. He uh, was only eight. And so also he's just very uh, tenderhearted and yeah. um, just, I don't know, we sort of as connected as we already were when, when Dan died, it was like we sort of our connection just increased probably because of him being so young and just clinging to the one parent that he had left. I think that he was scared, Mm -hmm. but uh, we used to call each other crying buddies because I didn't sit around crying all the time, but I wasn't, you know, trying to hide that, Hey, you know, dad died. I'm sad too. Yeah. Sometimes we would just sit there and cry together. Like I said, I didn't want my sadness and my grief to be, Um, something that was yet another strike against them in life. Mm -hmm. And so I did the best I could to keep their activities, their school functions, all of that going as usual. I had a lot of support, so that helped. My sister lives pretty close. I had a lot of great friends that were close that would help me fill in the gaps. And there were lots of gaps, but and you got involved with a, a local support group also, right? With yes. other families who had lost a loved one? Yes. There's a place in Fort Worth called The Warm Place, and it's a grief support center for families, uh, for children who have lost. It can be a, a, um, a parent or it can be a sibling, a grandparent. There are different groups that are uh focused on different losses. And so I took my kids to The Warm Place we started going there a couple of months after Dan died, and we met once every other week. You start out having a potluck supper with it was like 10 or 12 other families, probably. And so all the families are together at the beginning of the evening. And then after dinner, 
the kids break into age groups to uh, just do some grief work, some activities to help them cope with the loss of their loved one. And the parents go to a different room and have a support group that's led by a facilitator. Um, And would you recommend getting connected in a way like that? Was that a very beneficial for you guys? Oh, it was, I can't, cannot say enough about how important that was in our uh, grief process. I would have never thought that I would be a proponent, proponent of a support group. (laughs) That sounds terrible, but I just, I kind of pictured it as just a bunch of people getting in a room together and whining about whatever it was, you know, and that sounds very cynical, but I'm just being honest. So I really just went there for my kids because I was so terrified that I was going to mess this up. I thought I've got four different people here who are going to grieve the loss of their father in four different ways. And I don't have a clue where to start. And so being able to go to a place like that just took a load off of me. But the the funny thing is that I think in hindsight, I probably benefited as much, if not more, from the parent support group. Because being a 40-year-old widow with four kids, you don't have a lot of people around you who know where you're coming from. Right. And you have a lot of sweet friends who have been through things, but it's just so different. Mm -hmm. And to be in a room full of parents, and sometimes it was grandparents um, raising kids who had lost their parent, but for the most part, it was parents in the same boat as me, fairly young with young kids. That was invaluable. I just cannot say enough how important that was. And now I'm, I'm a huge proponent of support groups. Yeah. Because we can have, dear friends that we can share with and that we can cry with and that will encourage us and, and all of those things. But when you haven't walked through whatever it is, there is a level of empathy or, you know, just the words we have had just a taste of that in the world of adoption. You know, now that we've Mm -hmm. been through adoption, when we're with other families that have adopted, there's just another level of understanding and empathy and the words you use and just the unwritten emotions that are there. And I'm sure it's the same way with the loss of a child or the loss of a spouse or even blended families, you know, and being remarried. And I mean, just those kinds of life-changing events in our world, you need to be connected to other people that have literally walked through those same types of trails, you know? I agree. And I think in a group like that. And it's like, you're saying, it's probably the same with adoptive parents. You have, you feel the freedom to say some things that you probably don't want to say to people who aren't walking down the same road because they wouldn't understand. Absolutely. Yes. Because I think some of the things that we said in that support group would people who aren't walking through it, couldn't handle it. (laughs) I think they would think that we were insensitive or selfish Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. you just don't feel free to be real sometimes with people who aren't in the same situation. And yet in that group, we're able to process that and give each other grace and know, okay, this isn't a bad person. This is a good person who's going through something terrible. And I understand what they're feeling and Mm -hmm. it's okay. And we can all get through this together. It was wonderful. Similarly with parents um, of children with special needs. 
You know, exactly. other parents yeah. who have children with autism, other parents who have children with Down syndrome. I mean, it, there's just another level of conversation and openness and empathy that is shared. Yes, I agree. That's great. Yeah. I'm so thankful that that was there and that you were aware of it, you know, quickly. You guys got involved pretty quickly with that group? We did. And the reason was when uh, Dan was on hospice, um, part of that is that a social worker came to our house and um, helped us know what kind of resources were available. And that was super helpful. And one of the things that she did was give me a pamphlet for the warm place, which I had never heard of. So, um, yeah, some things you just don't know about until you go through something like that. Yeah. Yeah. What other, were there other conversations that you and Dan had in that last, um, month, uh, looking forward, you know, decisions that would be made after he was gone or whether it was with the children or you dating again, or, you know, all of those kinds of things. Did you talk about that stuff? You know, we, I think everybody's different in that aspect. And I think the two of us, I don't know if it was because of the age we were at or because of how quickly everything progressed, we could barely bring ourselves to talk about that stuff because Mm. I think it was just too painful to realize this is actually happening. Um, And so we did not talk about me dating after he died. We didn't talk about, you know, decisions for the kids. I think he completely trusted what I would decide for the kids. Um, and I think the thought of me not being married to him, I don't think we just couldn't even talk about it. Yeah. Um, so no, we didn't. And maybe there's a level two when, you know, when you are running after Jesus together, you know, when you're on your faith walk together and sharing your trust in the Lord and, and the way you want to obediently serve the Lord, some of those things can almost be unspoken and, and just understood as well. Mm-hmm. Would you say? Yeah. And you know, it's funny. I, I honestly, until you just asked me that question, <laughs> had not thought about the fact that he probably wanted me to feel like I trust you, you know, whatever mm-hmm. you're going to do when I'm not here, I trust you. So yeah, that's, I hadn't even thought about that, but it's, I appreciate it now. Because I know there have been so many times when I thought, oh, gosh, I don't know if Dan would do it this way or, Mm -hmm. you know, it's too bad. Dan's not here doing this instead of me because I'm sure he would do a much better job. You know, just Mm. being honest, I've had a lot of those thoughts. But I think he just wanted me to know, I trust you. What you're going to do is going to be fine. Yeah. Um, Yeah. What a sweet thing. Absolutely. How long was it? or is it even yet, (laughs) um, before you felt like you had some level of a new normal? I definitely feel like I have one now. I would say it took me probably maybe three or four years, really. I know for the first, I guess, three, three or four years, it kept feeling like I don't know what I'm supposed to do in this situation. I'm used to having him here. I'm used to him having him make these decisions with me Mm -hmm. or I'm used to being married and being single is way different than being married. And so that's an understatement, but um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't feel that anymore now. I feel uh, like this is the normal, but yeah, it took, it took a while. 
to feel and, brave enough to do a lot of things. On oh, that. that's a really good way to put it because we talk about, you know, being life partners. You're, you're doing life together now when you get married and for 20 years, you had an amazing life partner. Yeah. And so the way you described that, that now you were making all these decisions on your own and it just felt weird or wrong or or if you were brave enough to make that decision without your life partner, that's what an incredible way to, to word yeah. that. And that's definitely for me, what it boiled down to. I, I had a lot of fear when he was gone because I just felt very alone and felt like I'm going to make the wrong decision. Mm. I even felt fear, like just in being in the house by myself, the only one with the kids, you know, I got this big, dumb dog. because <laughs> <laughs> I remember when you got that big, dumb dog. <laughs> yes, I still have her and she's a great guard dog, but I got that because I was, I was afraid. I, yeah. I was physically afraid. Just so much fear in those That's first couple years. That's another testament to what an amazing husband Dan was though, because, you know, biblically, our husbands are our protectors, our providers. They are loving us with an umbrella of protection, you know? And mm-hmm. and so when when he was no longer here, you really felt that gap of security, not only the partner in life for decision-making and raising the kids, but also your, your protector. Yes, definitely. So that's I a testament did. to him. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And is. so then the other thing I heard, you know, three, four years when we lose a spouse and I'm sure it's very similar with a child, we need to give ourselves a ton of time and grace to figure out the new way and to start to feel any type of normal again. And then that's okay. We're not doing anything wrong if we're not whipping it back into shape within six months or whatever. Definitely. And in hindsight, if I could go back and talk to Linda at that point, I would say, look, get off of your back. (laughs) Mm. Because even though it took me three or four years, I would say that by, you know, six months to a year, I was already mad at myself for not having it all together. Mm. Um, So, yeah, I think giving ourselves grace in those times is essential. You just have to. Yeah. Because we would give it to other people. Right. We're our own worst critic always. Definitely. I would never look at someone else in the same situation and say, good grief, woman, get yourself together. But I would (laughs) definitely do it to myself. (laughs) Yes. And I had asked you ahead of time if there was a scripture or an encouragement that you would want to leave our listeners with. And you shared James 1, 2 through 4. Is that right? That is right. So it says, consider it a great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, but endurance must do its complete work so that we may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Yeah, that um, that verse became my favorite verse in high school, actually, and it's gotten me through a lot of hard times. The Dan's death has been the worst, the hardest time, but I would say not... When I read that and think of it in reference to all of this, it's not just that I'm enduring after his death. It's that even when we first found out he was sick and went through all those months of his illness, um, and even before that, you know, in marriage, when it got hard with various other things that we've talked about, 
um, we didn't give up. We just, instead of turning on each other, we turned to each other and we turned to God. And so good. Um, we just kept putting one foot in front of the other and enduring. And I, and it's very evident to me that the people that we were when he died are not the people that we were when we got married. Thank God, because we <laughs> kept enduring and kept growing and God was faithful to give us what we needed and to make us into the people who could handle what he, you know, what was going to come up in life. And I feel like he equipped us in that way. And he equipped, he continues to do that with me. I'm by no means perfect. I'm still enduring and still trying to become what he wants me to be. But, um, I really, I love that verse because of all that. That is beautiful. And you know, the, even the enduring and the suffering in that verse, when you've walked through something and gotten to the other side and, and felt the growth in you as a person and in your relationship with the Lord or your relationship with others around you, it's not all dark and negative around that scripture because you can see the the blossoms on the other side where you've grown and you've come through and you have endured and you have become a little bit more complete, even though until we get to those pearly gates, we're still (laughs) incomplete and perfect, but, but you see those steps in the right direction. And that's a fulfillment that we can only get from the Lord. Yes. And I love how that verse starts because it says, consider it joy. And Mm. I think Early on in my walk with Christ, that was hard to grasp. I thought it was a great concept, but I thought when these hard things come my way, I don't feel joyful. But the more that life goes on and the more that I've endured, I I can look at it in a little different light because I can see, okay, whatever this is going to produce in me, it's going to be good. And I can have that joy on the inside, knowing that whatever, what, whatever reason I'm going through this hard time, God's using it. And that ultimately is joy. That's awesome. Well, thank you, Linda, for sharing all of the emotions. And, um, you know, like you said, one of the hardest times you've ever walked through, thank you for opening up and sharing that with us. And I feel like I've learned so many just tidbits and nuggets of, of perspective and how to support and love others and so many good things. So thank you for spending time with me today. And I love you dearly, even though I never get to see you anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you for letting me. It was a privilege and I, I am so happy you're doing this. Thanks for listening today. If you enjoyed the podcast, please take a minute to leave a review and share it with a friend to be part of Strengthening Marriages. Until next time, be sure you're loving on relationships.